Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's an Original Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Vampire Night, Season 2, Episodes 4, 5, and 6, and let's jump right into the recap. Episode 4 opens with a shot of Shiki arriving at his granduncle's home. Unexpectedly, Ichiru is there, and his granduncle says that he has something he wants to show him today because he's no longer a child. Despite how ominous all of this feels to Shiki, it's something that he apparently has to know as a member of the family. So they go down into the basement of their family mansion, and there's this weird contraption down there. It's like, kind of reminiscent of a coffin, or maybe a sarcophagus, but it's a bit more... boxy, I suppose? And it inspires me to make a very stupid reference. If you've read The Lost Symbol, which is a horrible Dan Brown novel set in DC, you'll recognize what I'm about to describe, but bear in mind that I read this book like a decade ago, at least, and I might be misremembering the finer details of this plot point that I'm about to describe, but the crux of it is this. In that story, Dan Brown's totally cool and definitely not a weird old loser author avatar, the one played by Tom Hanks in the film adaptations, gets, I believe, abducted by the villain and put in this box that is slowly filling up with some unknown liquid. Now, despite the fact that Dan Brown's whole gimmick is to insist that all of the history and science in his plots are totally real and totally accurate, he is totally lying. So in this story, the protagonist gets put into this box that's filling with a liquid, he can't escape, and he's surely going to drown. Except, it turns out that this is a psychological torture thing in reality. It's not actually water that's filling the box. It is, quote, breathable liquid. Which is very stupid. Breathable liquid is not a thing that exists. If you breathe in a liquid, you will die. But, just like in a Dan Brown novel, that is what's happening here. This guy, whoever he is, is submerged in a box filled with some reddish liquid that one presumes is blood, given that this is a vampire story. Above him, there's some kind of a contraption built of glass tubes and vials and containers that really gives mad scientists. What is it, though? I have no idea. We don't know what this is actually for, precisely. One presumes that it's some kind of a healing bath for vampires, given a line we'll get in a minute. But right now, the contraption isn't the thing that's important. No, the important bit here is obviously the person inside it. Surprise, he is Shiki's father, a man that Shiki apparently thought was dead his entire life. A man who his mother calls a brute and implies probably raped her, which could be the reason that Shiki's mom seems so damn unstable at present day. And then we see, rather unsurprisingly, another important person. Remember that little boy from a few episodes ago? The one that gave Yuki a kiss on the cheek that made her drop like a brick? The one with the reddish-brown hair, and the one reddish-brown eye, and the one blue eye whose distinctive appearance had me wildly speculating about his identity? Well, I had theorized at the time that he might be in some way related to Yuki, and I suspect that in a roundabout way, that did turn out to be true. But we will get to that. For now, the little boy is very clearly possessed, just as Maria was last season. Only this boy isn't being possessed by Shizuka, he is being possessed by the man in the contraption, who I suspect is Shizuka's pureblood fiancé mentioned in the previous season. But again, more on that in a little bit. It's a hell of a large, tangled theory that I'm sitting on here, and I think it's accurate, so I don't want to get into all of it right now, at least not until I've recapped all of the building blocks. 
Now, the man here mentions that he's been wondering what Shiki would grow up to look like, and I find that a bit of an interesting tidbit. The entire relationship between this person and Shiki is rather interesting, in fact. There is clearly no love between him and Shiki's mother, so why does Shiki exist? Was he an accident, or did this mysterious villain choose to have a child for some distinct reason, possibly related to his master plan? Was Shiki literally conceived just so that this villain could someday possess him? That's certainly possible, but what a horrible thing to discover about yourself. What an awful origin. But then we're done with the little boy. He collapses just the same way Maria did in the previous season, and we see the person in the box sit up. We catch only the briefest of glimpses of his face, but the resemblance is unmistakable. The hair is a bit reddish, yes, but the rest of it is so familiar that I'm calling it now. If this person isn't somehow closely related to Yuki and or Kaname, I'm going to be stunned. He looks just like Kaname, and so I am back on my evil uncle or evil brother theory from my previous episode. Now, I am banking on one of those being the case because those tend to be the cliche, but it's also possible that we're doing something a bit more creative here. Technically, this could be Kaname and Yuki's father, or a cousin with an extremely strong resemblance, or like some kind of a super powerful evil ancestor or something, maybe a descendant from the future. Maybe he's their evil kid. Given that vampires actually age in this series, though, I would say that evil grandpa is probably off the table, but I suppose we'll see. But as he gets out of the box, he calls Senri his beloved son, a sentiment that is immediately undercut by a sudden and violent assault. We find that they share a power set. We've seen Shiki pull off the blood whip attack that this villain pulls off here, only this guy has a whole set of tentacle-like whips that he uses to seize his son with the ominous words, lend me your power. It is clearly not a request. I am hoping that Shiki is going to make it out of this alive. I have no idea, honestly, if this is the type of show that will allow characters to start dying as we approach the climax and the ending. It might be the kind of series wherein everyone survives, or the only deaths are heroic sacrifices, or we might get a Game of Thrones-style anyone-can-die endgame. I kind of doubt that last, but it's possible. Elsewhere, though, at Ido's family vacation home, Kaname seems to immediately sense that this has happened. How? I don't know. But he definitely immediately knows that this person has awoken, and perhaps that too hints at a familial connection. So, he announces to his friends that they're all going back to the dorm, and one assumes that this is because he wants to be as close to Yuki as possible. I'd say it's both obvious and undeniable that Yuki is involved in this somehow. Surely it has something to do with why she lost her memories when she was five. Perhaps that this was the man who stole them from her. Or perhaps it's that they were erased to protect her from this man. We get a heaping helping of clues throughout this set of three episodes as to the larger plot here, but it's all very complex and I don't think I have quite enough puzzle pieces just yet to know what's really going on here. But the bottom line is very clear. This person who just woke up is an intense, immense, and immediate threat to Yuki's well-being, and so everyone has to rush back to the school. But now we're back to the distressed damsel in question. Yuki is dwelling upon her past. She's still having flashbacks of her mother and wondering who she is. How did she lose her memories? Did her parents abandon her? She has no answers, and for the first time in ten years, she seems to be truly lost in the melancholy of her trauma. So, into the bath she goes. As a self-care attempt, it's not a terrible idea, but it does go rather badly. 
While Cross and Zero are working on dinner, she reflects on how Zero actually really changed her life when he showed up four years ago. Being the emotional anger for him has helped her emotionally anger herself in a way that I can assure you is very common, specifically in people with PTSD who have been socialized female. You can very effectively dissociate from your own feelings by focusing on someone else's. It's just, you know, not healthy. Our society expects women to be nurturing figures, willing to do emotional maintenance for the men and boys in their lives at the drop of a hat. Nurturing is considered pretty much the peak female virtue. And so if you, as a person socialized female or femme, can manage to dissociate from your own trauma by nurturing someone else through their trauma, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that you're healing, and that in the long term you will be healed by this caretaking. But that's not how it works. Repressing your emotions won't actually help you in the long run. And as for Yuki specifically, I appreciate what the show is trying to do with setting up the idea that Zero and Yuki emotionally need each other, but I don't like that it comes across as them being each other's emotional crutches. Having a sibling or a partner serve as a member, even the key member of your support system, is awesome. It's great. But having someone be your entire emotional linchpin is also not healthy in the long run. That does not a good relationship make. I suppose what I'm saying is that Yuki and Zero are a couple that I could approve of in the long term, but only if both of them actually work on themselves. For Yuki, that would mean dealing with her self-esteem issues and her depression and her childhood trauma, not to mention cutting Kaname's toxicity out of her life. And for Zero, this would mean dealing with his own self-hate and trauma, not to mention his anger and control issues. Basically, these two need lots of therapy, and that they haven't gotten it already makes Cross, their mutual sort of dad, come across as a pretty useless parental figure for taking in two severely traumatized children without ever getting them any kind of trauma-related psychological help. Now, of course, to be fair, I don't have any idea what mental health services are like in Japan. I don't know if there is such a thing as private therapy there, I have no idea if it's considered some kind of insanely shameful only as a last resort type of deal, I have no idea if a person who isn't obscenely wealthy would be able to afford mental health treatment over there, I have no idea about any of those aspects. Such are the pitfalls of viewing and reviewing media from other cultures and societies you're not a part of. Still, my opinion's right. But anyway, back to the bath. Yuki's depressed introspection pulls her into this horrible shame spiral that brings her into tears, and when Zero knocks on the door to check on her, things take a turn for the worse. She gets this little flash of herself as a child, probably a five-year-old, probably right before her memories were taken. In the flashback, her past self is terrified, and it leaves her terrified in reality as well, because it bleeds into reality. Because as she goes to get out of the tub, she is suddenly lying in this large tub of blood. Or, more accurately, She's hallucinating that she is. And Zero panics upon hearing her scream, but she talks him out of it, and he goes to leave while she gets dressed and ready for dinner. But then she stops him, asking that he not leave her yet because she's so scared. His presence makes her feel safer, and so she wants him to stand on the other side of the door while she gets dressed. And again, this unfortunately, to me, reads less as crush behavior and more as little sister behavior. I just can't tell you guys how much I would have preferred their relationship if they had just been platonic foster siblings instead of a romantic couple. 
So at that point, Yuki ends up admitting to Zero that she was thinking about her missing memories, and Zero posits the theory that perhaps her family was actually a hunter family, or that they were somehow otherwise victims of vampires. And despite the fact that Cross says there are no incidents that could be related to her past that fit the bill, Zero ends up suggesting that they look at the records that the Hunter Society keeps of vampire attacks and vampire executions. He suggests that she go read them herself, and perhaps that will jog her memories. And honestly, it is a good theory. This is a good thing for him to say. It's not going to help in the long run because someone is actively trying to keep Yuki's history away from her, but it is a good move. Good job, Zero. So with that said, we are off. Zero and Cross and Yagari, for some reason, take Yuki to the Hunter Society headquarters, which apparently exists in a town almost entirely comprised of hunters. And that is a detail that I have to admit I find both incredibly amusing and also rather frustrating. I know so much about this world, and yet sometimes I really truly feel like I know virtually nothing about it. I had no idea that this was the kind of world in which there could be an entire hunter society town, and yet there is. Not for the first time, I have to admit that I find everything going on in the background and the periphery of this story so much more interesting than anything involving Yuki. But here's hoping that Yuki is going to get more interesting soon, because I'm sure the reveal about her history is closing in on us quick. So anyway, I think this is my first time seeing Cross, Yagari, Zero, and Yuki all together like this, and it's definitely the first time that they've been together without at least one of them at another's throat. And given my relationship preferences between these four, I am very charmed by this little scene. They come across so much like a blended family here. Legally speaking, Cross is Yuki's father. Yugari, meanwhile, is Zero's mentor and father figure, while Cross has been in charge of actually raising Zero since his parents died. They are an adorable little family of dad and dad and step-siblings, and I just don't know what to tell you guys at this point. It's like I'm catching a glimpse of my preferred version of the show in this moment, and I really wish the show and I were on the same page about what it should be doing. But alas, we're not, so I suppose I'd best move on. As they approach the building, Cross is worried about the inherent risk of letting Zero come here, and Yagari makes it clear that while he is a vampire hunter through and through, he doesn't really love the society. I'm honestly not perfectly clear on what it is that he dislikes about it, but perhaps that's because I don't really know much about it at all. Perhaps he merely hates the bureaucracy, or perhaps he, like me, thinks that the higher-ups in this organization are up to something sinister. In any case, they go into the headquarters, which quickly proves itself to be kind of a hilarious place. It's this big, huge open room, very stylishly designed, that is just full of all these vampire hunters milling about and standing around looking over at the protagonist as if they're waiting for her to come and talk to them and hear their NPC dialogue. It truly reads like a scene from a video game. I felt like I was going to visit the companions in Skyrim for the first time. Except, as I say that, I realize that I sound absurd. I don't need to reference the companions here because Skyrim literally has their own version of this entire plot, doesn't it? A vampire hunter society and a whole noble vampire society at odds. Except there are also more or less friendly vampires like Serana and Sybil Stentor who just want to live in harmony with humans. And now I want to go play Dawnguard again. But anyway, much though I would have liked to pretend that all of these background characters are staring because they have sensed the arrival of a player character, that's not actually it. No, their gazes are hostile. 
Just as Zero was once able to sense that Shizuka was a vampire, these men and women are now able to sense that he is. And so, they are accosted by one of the men, who notes that Zero, as a vampire, shouldn't even be able to enter the building. But the suppressed aggression turns to taunting. Zero, he realizes, is a tame vampire, as evidenced by the brand on his neck. And while his taunting doesn't seem to affect Zero himself, it definitely gets to Yuki. They're saved from further escalation, though, by the appearance of that very gender-ambiguous character from Season 1. Now, I believe that the show at this point begins using the pronoun he for this character. I had been using they in the past, but as the show is using he, that's what I'm going to be using going forward. And his lines here are... interesting. I don't know for sure whether or not Yagari is suspicious of the hunters, but everything the president says here makes me suspicious of them. Altogether unprompted, the president remarks upon the prestige of Zero's hunter family and, quote, with his vampire powers, he will be a valuable ally in time to come. Now, I wouldn't find this comment particularly suspicious if the show had put any work into building my trust toward this character or the society he represents, but it hasn't. Instead, it's portrayed the society repeatedly doing rather shifty things, including sending Zero into the veritable lion's den a few episodes ago without much in the way of protection. And so when this guy points out that Zero is a character wherein the worlds of Hunter and Vampire meet, well, I don't know precisely what it is that I suspect, but I definitely suspect something. We are, after all, finding that an increasing number of characters are involved in the conspiracy, or perhaps chess game is a better word, involving Kaname, Shizuka, and Shiki's mysterious father. So I do have to wonder, is the president of the Hunter Society involved too? And if he is, what side is he on, and does it matter? And perhaps even more importantly, how much of the Hunter Society does this comprise? Surely they're not all involved in whatever the hell is going on with the Karan family. Or, perhaps the protagonist is only involved in Zero's small part of the plot. Let me put it this way. Zero comes from this prestigious family. Even as a little kid, he showed enormous promise as a vampire hunter. And now that he has vampire powers, he presents an incredible opportunity for the society. So I have to wonder, did this guy somehow purposefully set Zero up to be turned into a vampire? Ichiru told us that he asked Shizuka to spare Zero's life, but was she not the one who decided to turn him into a vampire? Did the president or someone else in the society tell her to do that? Or was her choice merely a happy accident for them? Because I'm finding it increasingly likely that the Hunter Society wasn't so much tricked into killing Shizuka's lover, as they willingly did so as part of Shiki's father's plans. Or perhaps they've got plans of their own. Because at this point, I've gotta admit that I am 100% convinced that the Shizuka thing is tied in with whatever Shiki's father is up to. I will be stunned if it turns out that Shiki's father was not, in fact, Shizuka's pureblood fiancé. In any case, though, it is Cross's request that actually gets Yugi into the room to look at the old information that could be relevant to her own missing memories. As the society president says, they don't normally allow regular people to go and look at the records. But Cross is prestigious enough within the organization that he can vouch for Yugi and pull this kind of a string. And I'm sure it doesn't hurt that Yugi doesn't actually learn anything relevant. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. For now, Yuki is led into this enormous library that I am infinitely envious of. I adore any good library, and though I'm almost sure everything here is very academic and quite focused on vampire hunting, this still looks like a really damn good one. 
So, with all of the Hunter Society books and records at their disposal, Yuki and Cross head over to go look through the books while Zero himself gets called away by the Hunter Society president. And the two of them head into this little side room for what I fear is a rather pointless scene. I hope one of these little fragments of records comes back into play somehow, because otherwise... Well, the crux of the scene is to emphasize for the audience how suspicious the president is, and like... Yeah, I already got there a minute ago. A bit of subtlety goes a long way, but in this scene, the president has very little of that. Instead, he's as full of pointed taunts as the hunter in the previous scene. This room, it turns out, stores blood-soaked fragments of other reports of vampire activity, and the scent of blood is so thick in the air that Zero collapses to his knees while the president taunts him with the possibility that he's descending into a level E right before his very eyes. Which brings the president to what I suppose is his point. He tells Zero that level E degeneration can be prevented by drinking the blood of a pureblood, which is not a reveal. We already knew that. Zero already drank from Kaname. But apparently the president wants him to do it again. In fact, the president suggests that he take Kaname's blood by force, and oh boy is that a batshit crazy suggestion. It truly makes one wonder if the Hunter Society is genuinely just trying to get Zero killed. Perhaps bringing him into this room filled with blood was some kind of an attempt to get him to attack so that he could be executed with justification. Sending him to that gala a few episodes ago was almost certainly attempt at getting him killed, which is a conspiracy theory that Yagari and I agree on. So, are the vampire hunters just trying to get him murdered or executed? Or is something bigger going on? Because as it stands right now, the idea of Zero killing Kaname is exceptionally laughable. Kaname can blast holes through entire tree trunks with a stray glance. The Bloody Rose gun might be enough to save Zero's ass under perfect circumstances, but as we saw with Shizuka, it doesn't one-hit kill purebloods. And Kaname is far stronger than Shizuka ever was. It honestly might not even slow him down. But, the president brings up this cursed twins idea that was previously mentioned by Ichiru. While Zero is not strong enough to take blood by force from Kaname now, he hints at the possibility of becoming stronger somehow through this cursed twins thing. And to be frank, I find that incredibly hard to believe. The power level that Kaname appears to be at is genuinely just off the chart at this point, and cursed twins doesn't really sound like much of a good helpful thing in the first place, does it? Though, I suppose I can't possibly hope to judge until I get some actual concrete information on what the hell cursed twins actually are in the first place. But, back in the library proper, we find Yuki has finally found the page that she needs, and it immediately bursts into flame. She doesn't get to read any of it, and worse, no one knows why or how this happened. Between you and me, my money is squarely on Kaname, but that's just because I hate the guy. Shiki's father and the Hunter Society president are also perfectly good candidates. From there, though, we head back to the school. After such a fruitless search, Yuki lies awake in bed that night, unable to sleep for dwelling on everything that has happened to her, and she's haunted by both flashes of memory and visual hallucinations. This poor girl is genuinely losing her mind. But, elsewhere in the Headmaster's Mansion, Zero is dealing with his own mysterious misfortunes. According to Cross, the whole cursed twins thing is a myth about twins who are born into vampire hunter families. And the English translation here is a bit ambiguous, it could really go either way. 
When he says that this is about twins born to vampire hunting families, does he mean any and all twins born to vampire hunting families? Or does he mean it in the way that there is something akin to a prophecy about a specific set of twins being born to a specific vampire hunting family? But as Zero leaves, we do get a bit more clarification. Yugari comes around the corner and says twins aren't born into vampire families. According to him, quote, even if there are twins in the womb, one will overtake the other and only one will be born. And he calls this, quote, the abominable curse of the vampires. And I have to wonder what in the world that means? I suppose it must genuinely be some kind of a curse put upon society families by vampires at some point in history, because otherwise this makes just about zero sense. For vampire hunters to never have twins for any reason other than outright magic, they would quite simply have to be other than human. But then how do Ichiru and Zero fit into that premise? I suppose this notion of their inherent impossibility, this notion that the two of them should not exist as a pair, that one of them should not exist, period, it is an interesting complication to Ichiru's character, especially in regards to his chronic illness and the mental health problems that stemmed from it. But at the end of the day, I truly just feel like I need to know more information about this, because again, as Yugari says, it defies all odds for both Ichiru and Zero to be born. And so he suggests that perhaps they bear some even greater curse than the no-twins curse. I'm sure that the answers to my questions are coming, but for now, we're gonna have to make do without. In our next scene, Zero visits Yuki in her bedroom to see how she's feeling, and as per usual, she puts on a fake smile and pretends that she's fine. Zero calls her out on lying, which turns the conversation very tense indeed, and Yuki has yet another sudden flash of memory. This time, though, it's not something mysterious from her past. It's a flashback to last season, that moment when Kaname kissed her wound on her arm to heal it. And for some reason, this triggers for her the realization that if she's missing memories, perhaps it's because of his powers. Perhaps he took her memories away from her. Now, the less said about the conversation here between Yuki and Zero, the better. It's a flagrant display of what I dislike about both of their characters. Yuki is this self-hating doormat that's too pitiful to be interesting, and Zero is toxic and patriarchal and emotionally abusive. At first, it looks like these two are about to kiss, but no, Zero brings his fangs down to her neck instead, which is a problem. She keeps asking him to bite her, and he keeps getting upset about it, and so I keep harping on her emotional immaturity and lack of respect for his boundaries. But now he just takes what he wants from her without asking, as if offering consent in the past somehow grants him blanket permission to bite her whenever the fuck he wants, forever. Again, vampire bites are always a sex metaphor, so say it with me, people. Consent once, twice, or a million times is not infinite consent. You have to fucking ask, you asshole. Worse yet, when Zero pulls away from her throat, he's mad at her for not trying to stop him. He tells her that she, quote, doesn't understand that she's a victim. And I hope I don't have to explain how unequivocally misogynistic this whole exchange is. Not that he means it to be. No, this is the unconscious misogyny of the young man who has never questioned the patriarchal values of his society, or his male privilege, and he's so caught up in his own self-hatred that he's not remotely thinking of how it affects her in this moment when he essentially demands that she hate him as much as he hates himself. 
And while I want to have sympathy for both of them, because both of these kids are just so incredibly broken and self-loathing, this is insufferable. Both of these people are insufferable. Their emotional arcs here are not subtle or interesting or handled deftly. I feel like I'm being bludgeoned with their fictional mental health problems and like, guys, I've got enough mental health problems of my own without needing to drown in some made-up person's depression. But from there, we cut to Konami, and he and the other vampires have made it back to the school. They all head to the moon dorm, except for Ichijo, who has been called to another meeting with his grandfather. So Ichijo heads off, and the rest of the vampires head into the school. Yuki and Zero are there to greet them, and Konami gives Yuki a little gift. Quote, it's a rose that only blooms once a decade, preserved in resin. Now, I rather suspect that I'm looking at a Chekhov's gun MacGuffin kind of thing here. But if this thing doesn't serve a literal function in the story, it still does serve a symbolic one. Oh boy, is this thing symbolic. It's incredibly symbolic, in a deeply vile and perverse fashion, of Yuki and Konami's relationship itself. Now, if you're a Yuki Konami shipper, I'm honestly surprised you're still with me at this point. I get it. He's hot. But he's a horrible person. There is no possibility for redemption for this character at this point. Even if he has good motivations for his villainy, he's still a villain. Zero may be a toxic boyfriend, but Kaname is just a predator. Kaname's interest in Yuki is incredibly possessive and obsessive. He's not interested in her. Listen to the way he talks about her and think about the implications of how he acts in regards to her. He infantilizes her. He objectifies her. He purposefully hides things from her in order to make sure that she does what he wants, just like the rest of the pawns in this little game that he's playing against Shiki's father. Kaname makes it very clear that what he actually wants for Yuki is mindless happiness. He keeps making remarks about wanting her happy and not wanting her to worry while he keeps her in the dark, while he neglects to tell her about the danger she's in, while he steals her memories and dodges even outright demands for answers. The Yuki that he wants is not a whole person with flaws and foibles and a mind of her own that might lead her into conflict or opposition or even just difficult conversations with him. What he wants is essentially a lobotomized, obedient, and purely submissive Yuki, unburdened by the realities of her situation and unwilling or unable to look at Kaname and his actions critically. It is extremely disturbing. To Kaname, Yuki is a beautiful possession, and she's one that is showing increasing resistance to the idea of blindly submitting to his will. And so I have this horrible growing fear and suspicion that just as he has this rose preserved forever and eternally in resin, beautiful and perfect but very much dead, I definitely think that this is genuinely how he wants his little sister. That rose was preserved in resin when it bloomed to preserve its beauty forever at the cost of its life, and I am increasingly terrified that he's going to try to do the same thing to Yuki. He's been hanging around in her life since she was a tiny little girl. A bud of a flower, if you will. And now that she's blooming into a young woman, I dread to find out what the literalization of preserving her in amber is going to be, because I am increasingly convinced that it's coming, or at least that Kaname is going to try because he's a terrifying fucking person. And if I had any confidence that either the fandom at large or the show itself were aware that he's an extremely frightening villain, I'd be much more inclined to enjoy him and his role in the story. As it is, though, 
Instead, I think he's being played straight as a romantic interest. And the whole thing is just really, really disturbing. But anyway, before Kaname leaves, Yuki tells him that she has something she wants to talk with him about, and he agrees. They will meet later that night, but Yuki is not going to get what she wants out of it. He's going to make sure of that. So when we move into the moon dorm, we find Aido and Kaname in the hall. Aido tries to play off his surprise at seeing Kaname back so soon, but it's an undeniably tense moment. Kaname can immediately sense that Aido has been in his bedroom looking for something. Aido, thankfully, manages to rather deftly dodge facing any horrible consequences here, and he even pressures Kaname to tell him what the hell is going on, or at least some tiny part of it. Specifically, he asks whether or not the death of Kaname's parents could have something to do with whatever Kaname is doing right now. And to Aido's immense surprise, Kaname reveals that his parents did not actually complete suicide. Rather, they were murdered. He refuses to say any more than that, though, and he implies that to press for more information means to risk getting killed. Whether by Shiki's dad or Kaname himself, though, is unclear. For Aido's sake, I'd like to believe that Kaname is genuinely at least slightly fond of him, but I'm not convinced of that. Not by a long shot. I certainly haven't forgotten all of the times that he has hit him over the course of this show. The one bone that Kaname does throw to Aido is to thank him for not suspecting that he was the one who killed his parents. And I suppose that I must begrudgingly admit that no, he probably didn't. Kaname's parents were probably killed by Shiki's dad. Not that Kaname isn't still a shifty fuck. But, speaking of Shiki's dad, Ichijo has finally met up with his grandfather, who tells him that there's someone he needs to meet. We don't get to see this person's face, but it's quite clear that this person is Shiki's dad. Who else could it be? He gets this hilarious villain moment. Hilarious not because of anything he does, but because of the wibbly-wobbly morality of a modern vampire tale. Because when we're doing sympathetic vampires, which we almost always are these days, writers so often try to jump through a very silly series of hoops to try to make the vampire sympathetic. Vampire Knight's handling of these tropes is actually one of the better ones that I've seen. The vampires in this universe apparently do eat food and have blood pills that allow them to drink non-human blood. But in a culture where so-called vegan vampires show up more often than not, I am honestly just begging for someone to go all in on the concept of vampire blood donation. Because the way this villain is introduced to Ichijo involves him draining some woman dry, and while that's obviously a villainous move, it also somehow manages to come across as if the villainous part of what's happening here is that he's drinking real, actual blood instead of using a blood pill. Not that he's, you know, murdering a woman. It's one of those moments that's perfectly good if taken in a vacuum. But when viewed in context of all the other vampire stories in post-2000s culture, it's another little moment of vampire stories acting very, very silly, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, though, Ichio is apparently all in on Shiki's dad, or so he wants Shiki's dad to believe. Personally, I do buy it, but there's plenty of room for it to be less that Ichio was feigning deference to Kaname in the past, and more that Ichio is subservient to literally whichever pureblood is physically closest to him at any given moment. He may be less of a mole or a traitor character, and more of an opportunist trying to play all sides. We'll see. Either way, Ichijo looks completely horrified by this person that he's looking at, and that's where the episode ends. Our next episode finds Yuki dwelling on the rose that she was given, and on those earliest memories of hers. 
For the first time we've seen, potentially the first time in her entire life, she is questioning how and why Konami just so happened to be there in the right moment during a blizzard to save her from being killed by a level E. Honestly, I think this is another point against Yugi. That she's only wondering this now shows me that, yeah, she's not exactly a bright girl. But I guess at least she got there eventually. Now, in the headmaster's office, Cross and Zero are having a conversation when Cross accidentally cuts himself on a piece of broken china. He offers to let Zero lick the wound, and that's an I'm-about-to-call-CPS line if ever there was one. And Zero mentions that Yuki, too, has been pressuring Zero to drink her blood. Cross is surprised to hear this, but only momentarily indignant to find out that Zero is drinking Yuki's blood. Once again, I am struck by how utterly useless a father Cross is. He's trying to be a good dad, trying to come at the situation from the perspective of just wanting what's best for his daughter and of allowing her room to make her own choices. And while I generally tend to love that kind of a parent-child dynamic, it just isn't working here. What's going on with Yuki is simply not age-appropriate. Cross's behavior in regards to her behavior and her relationships and her autonomy right now makes sense if and only if she is an actual adult, which she is decidedly not. She's only 15. She's a baby and he needs to show considerably more concern that she's asking her foster brother slash boyfriend to drink her blood. I think part of what bothers me so much about this is that this show has kind of lost touch on the whole vampire metaphor. That's not terribly surprising. We are doing cross-cultural translation here. God knows that when the West incorporates Eastern storytelling elements in our fiction, we warp things unrecognizable. So it's not surprising that this Japanese vampire story is slightly altered from the likes of Carmilla or Dracula, but let me clarify what I mean. Here's what's happening. In Western media, from Carmilla to Dracula to Buffy and beyond, the bite of a vampire is metaphorical sex. In our stories, a vampire bite that is consensual is as to consensual sex, and a vampire bite that is non-consensual is a metaphorical rape. But that's not what's happening here. Look at that scene with Zero and Yuki in the previous episode. He moves in to kiss her, only to reveal at the last second that he's biting her instead. Hell, look at when Zero bites Kaname. Those scenes are all drawn as kisses, makeout sessions. They're sexual, yes, but they're not metaphorical sex, they're metaphorical kissing. So that's why Cross's behavior drives me insane, I suppose. It's a larger problem with him, specifically one that will show up again when we see his reaction to Konami later, but in this immediate moment, from a Western point of view, Cross has just told his foster son that he's alright with him having metaphorical sex with his 15-year-old adopted daughter. But the story does not think that it's metaphorical sex. The story seems to think that vampire bites are metaphorical makeout sessions, and, well, Yes, a 15-year-old is more welcome to make their own choices when it comes to who they kiss than who they fuck, but there's also a non-metaphorical layer here that I think the show is really ignoring. In most stories, vampire bites are a sex metaphor. In this story, they're a kissing metaphor. But regardless of the metaphor is the physical reality. When Zero bites Yuki, he is literally eating a part of her physicality, her blood is a part of her body. He is consuming a part of her body for sustenance, a part that if she loses only half of, she will die. 
If he is not incredibly careful, he could easily kill her over the course of several bites. And the guy is an over-emotional 17-year-old facing the threat of losing his mind to bloodlust entirely. It's not safe for Yuki to be doing this, because the literal reality of this is that Yuki very well could die each and every time they do this. She is placing her continued existence fully upon the shoulders of Zero's self-control. And I just need Cross to be more concerned about that. But Cross has something else on his mind instead. He tells Zero that there's going to be a new transfer student to the day class and that he will not approve this person's application to the school unless Zero consents. And from the look on Zero's face, it's not anyone that Zero would want around, which obviously means that it's Ichiru. Despite the fact that we last saw him working with the Vampire Senate, Ichiru has for some reason decided to become a student. Based off what happens later, I would say it's pretty clear that he's here at the school on Shiki's father's orders. And when we get to that scene, oh boy, do I have theories. But that night, Yuki is startled by the sudden appearance of Kaname behind her. Physically standing up for herself for once, she whips around and swings the Artemis rod at him before she realizes who he is. But Kaname is so powerful at this point that the Artemis rod is nothing to him, which is incredibly distressing to me, given that Kaname takes this opportunity here to remind me just why Yuki so desperately needs some kind of weapon capable of fending him off. Because despite the fact that she's truly terrified in this moment, he seizes her without asking, without saying anything at all in fact, and pulls her into a tight bear hug and casts aside her weapon like it's trash. Kaname asks her what it was that she wanted to say that she couldn't say in front of the others, but this poor pathetic child just cannot bring herself to ask him her question. Kaname, for his part, knows exactly what she wants to say, and to avoid her question, he tells her the one thing most capable of short-circuiting her brain and effectively distracting her. He tells her that he loves her. And then the scene just ends. We cut to Yuki on the floor with the Artemis rod cast away beside her and Zero walks up, surprised to find her here. She admits that she couldn't bring herself to actually ask Kaname about her memories. She simply cannot stand up against him. It is shameful. Zero, though, at least thinks that he has no such issue. He goes to the moon dorm on Yuki's behalf to try to get answers. Quote, are you involved in Yuki's past or not, he says to Kaname. Are you the one who removed her memories? And it goes badly. Kaname threatens him and then assaults him, shoving him into the wall so hard that the wall nearly crumbles. And once again, we find ourselves embroiled in this ridiculously slashy tension between them. It's honestly just fan service at this point, to a degree that I find kind of insulting. If I thought for a single second that there was actually any chance of this show actually exploring the sexual undercurrents of Zero and Konami's relationship, either in a slashy monogamy way or in a poly bi way, I'd be very interested in what's happening on the screen in this moment. But right now, I don't know, it just feels so disingenuous and condescending, like there's some showrunner somewhere sitting back, smoking a cigar and going, yeah, I don't know, make the boys kiss or something, little girls like that shit, right? And like, yes, we do, we did, but for fuck's sake, you at least have to make it believable. Because this is honestly just drama for drama's sake. 
or fan service for fan service's sake, if you prefer. Zero has the bloody rose gun pressed up against Konami's forehead, but of course it slows him down exactly as much as the Artemis Rod did. According to Konami, vampires are meant to instinctively fear and dread purebloods, yet Zero is capable of standing up to him, and that is definitely a strength. And again, this could be interesting if I thought the show gave a single fuck about what's happening in this scene beyond, ooh, boys. Because while Yuki is an incredibly boring wet rag, and both Konami and Zero are varying degrees of toxic assholes, they do at least have a very interesting dynamic. Their relationship is this wonderful push and pull full of tension and conflict. I can't really stand either one of them as characters, but they're at least interesting in a way that Yuki just plain isn't. They're rivals, potentially to the point of being antagonist and protagonist in the story, and there's some delightful foyer tension to be found between the two of them, because they're definitely acting like they're getting ready to fuck in this scene. Like, there's not really any alternate explanation in-universe for what Kaname does here. Don't get me wrong, I heard the shit he said. I heard that nonsense about giving him some more blood to make sure Zero isn't going to turn into a level E anytime soon, but it rings so hollow. This is such a pale imitation of the previous Zero Drinks Kaname's Blood scene, in that the stakes of that scene were so high, and the stakes here are completely made up. Kaname claims here to be solving a problem that isn't even actually a problem actually happening. And on a metatextual level, what is happening is clear. This is the writers redoing what I'm sure was an incredibly popular scene in that previous season in order to recapture the moment. But in universe, there is not a good explanation. And so I'm left with the only thing that makes sense. Kaname's explanation for what he's doing does not make any sense, which frankly means that he's either stupid or lying. And if there is one thing that this man has demonstrated that he is not, it's stupid. So he's lying. And he's also very, very close to Zero. He throws him against a literal wall, knocks him to the ground, leans in close enough to kiss, the sexual tension is off the fucking charts. Zero has his gun pointed at Kaname. Kaname has his hand around Zero's neck. He has this line about, your body is so obedient, and while he doesn't mean it in a sexual way, it is fundamentally a sexual line. Kaname mentions that Zero smells like Yugi, taunts him about being an ungrateful brat, and then his hand moves down from Zero's neck to part Zero's shirt, caress his bare chest for a moment, and then slash open his skin so that his injury will drive him to bloodlust. In other words, Kaname wants Zero to drink his blood. The motivation he gives makes no sense, and he contrives things so that Zero will not be able to resist. I repeat, Kaname is a predator, and there is no good in-universe explanation for this scene other than that he enjoyed Zero drinking his blood so much that he wanted to make sure it happened again. That is not what the show wants us to think, no. But it's the only thing that logically makes any sense. And if only it were done well, I would very much enjoy it. But it's not. If there is one thing that this scene reconfirms for me, though, it's that this ship is vastly more interesting than either ship involving Yugi. If I had to pick any two members of the core triangle to turn into a canon relationship, I am so, so very sorry, but it would have to be Kaname and Zero. And if this show sincerely wants me to ship either of them with Yugi, they're going to have to make her boring ass a whole hell of a lot more interesting before the end of the season. So... 
after this very sexually charged metaphorical sex scene, Zero leaps out the window to fuck back off to the Sundorm, but not before he gets caught by Ido. Apparently, all of the other vampires can smell Kaname's blood on the air. Ido is both horrified and furiously jealous to find Zero drenched in a mingled mess of Kaname's and his own blood. For the vampires of this universe, this is clearly extraordinarily intimate, and Ido is pretty devastated. He sees what's going on between Zero and Kaname more clearly than anyone else in this show, I think. The show doesn't want to make the subtext explicit, so Ido doesn't call it out exactly, but his jealousy says it all. Kaname very simply wants Zero and does not want Ido. It's literally text at this point. The only part of this that's still implicit is exactly what Kaname wants out of Zero. I just can't believe that this show is wasting so much time on Yuki when Kaname, Zero, and Ido are the actually interesting characters. But anyway, Ido tells Zero to get the hell out of Dodge quickly before the rest of the night class follow the scent of the blood and find out that he's been snacking on their favorite vampire prince. And then we have Ichiru being dropped off at the academy with the promise of getting vengeance in exchange for completing some mysterious task. And we're going to get more information in a little bit about what it is that he's actually being tasked with doing. The next day, though, Yuki is dwelling upon what Kaname said to her. I love you, he said, and though Yuki doesn't know this part, then he forced Zero to drink from him in a scene very much drawn identically to a kiss. Now, Yuki rightfully doesn't believe what he said, and she can see as clearly as the rest of us can that he's just trying to distract her from asking her questions. Anyway, it at first appears that she's going to skip class, but then she crawls into the classroom like an absolute fucking weirdo. I have no idea why the hell she's down on her knees like a dog. It's very bizarre, and it's nothing resembling stealthy. But while she decided not to skip class, Zero actually did, though someone who looks just like him is there in his place. Ichiru is there for his first day, being introduced to the class, and oddly enough, he's knocking the whole being the new kid at school thing out of the park. Really, I'm kind of boggled by how I'm supposed to buy this sudden shift in characterization. Until this point, he had two driving motives in the story. A, his devotion to Shizuka, and B, his extremely low self-esteem and intense envy toward Zero. But now, out of nowhere, he's extremely gregarious and charismatic, and he's endearing himself to the entirety of the day class with social skills that are logically far beyond what someone who's lived his life should be capable of. He is a character so fundamentally self-loathing that he participated in the murder of his family and consigned himself to following a crazy vampire into hiding for four years. And yet now, he's been dropped into a high school setting, which is one of the worst settings to be dropped into, and he's flourishing. It's ridiculous. Now, Yuki, for her part, realizes that Ichiru must be here for revenge, and Ichiru makes it very clear how much he cannot stand her. As he goes to a seat, he passes Yuki's, and he gets in this awful line about how Zero used to have taste, and he can't imagine why Zero thinks Yuki is so precious. It is very jealous ex, not evil brother. And it's a whole hell of a lot more accurate to season one Ichiru than anything else that's happening in this scene. Season one Ichiru absolutely wanted to bang, and this line very much tells me that this is still the case. For my part, though, I'm just left wondering, when the hell did Ichiru think that Zero actually had good taste? 
Meanwhile, in the headmaster's office, we see Yugari. He's putting on his cowboy hat because he's a cowboy for some damn reason, and he's getting ready to leave. Cross is all upset, holding on to his coattails, asking him not to leave because these two are in love and you cannot convince me otherwise. He goes into this nonsense speech about the motivation of him allowing Zero and Ichiru to be at the school at the same time, and let's just ignore the attempt at explanation that Cross gives because it's fully nonsensical. Cross is just a woefully brainless, stupid, careless character. He really drives me insane. So let's focus instead on that Yugari is leaving and Cross is begging him not to, and Yugari leaves him with this final line that gets translated into English as, quote, I don't object to you, and I think that's close enough to a love confession for me. It's certainly as close as I'm going to get, I'm sure, and it's very confession adjacent, so I'm taking this as a romantic moment and you people cannot stop me. But, back in the classroom, we find Ichiru surrounded by a bunch of fangirls. Finally, these girls have someone in their own class worth gushing over, and Ichiru is positively glowing under the attention. This is where he belongs. While Zero's experience at the school has been one of aloofness and detachment from his fellow students, with them so frequently describing him as scary and mean, Ichiru is positively blossoming here. And I wonder if perhaps he's starting to realize that this is what Shizuka robbed him of experiencing. Perhaps if he hadn't gone with her, he too could have lived like this for the past four years. Or maybe it's only one more reason to envy Zero. Now, when Zero realizes that his brother has arrived, of course, the two of them end up having a tense confrontation. One that doesn't really go anywhere, but one that Yuki witnesses. And afterwards, she takes the time to tell Zero how proud she is of him, singing his praises for the way that he interacts with a brother who he has very good reasons to hate. I think she's a bit too generous in her praise here, of course, but she definitely does make a certain point. But then she moves into talking about Kaname. She's getting ready to go see him again, and so she makes the very strange choice of confessing to Zero that she's been in love with Kaname for years. And Zero doesn't exactly take it well. Like me, he doesn't understand why in the world she's telling him this in the first place. And so they go their own separate ways on something of a sour note. And then Yuki goes running off to find Kaname. If I thought their previous interactions were uncomfortable and problematic, those were nothing compared to what we get into now. I believe it was at this point in my initial viewing of the scene, which you can watch for $5 over on Patreon, that I just started ranting. His behavior is at its absolute worst in this scene, though I'm sure he will continue to sink to even further depths in the future. For now, though, Yuki approaches her secret brother and asks him to finally tell her the truth without evading the question but he cannot possibly do that. Now that he knows that making her pleasantly distracted by I love you won't work, he tries instead to make her uncomfortable by dropping the subtlety. She's trying to avoid referencing those three little words specifically, and so he makes a point of repeating them and trying to make her feel bad about not believing that he's telling the truth. And because he's a grown man and she's a 15-year-old girl, it's a good game plan. But Yuki, bless her, stands her ground for once as well as a 15-year-old girl can stand her ground against a grown man who's groomed her into thinking that she loves him. Because he almost immediately goes in on the whole, was it so horrible that I said I loved you nonsense, to which she of course begins insisting that she's been in love with him forever, which again, she's only 15. Forever is from 5 years old to 15 years old. Excuse me while I vomit everywhere. And then... He escalates things the way he always does. He tries to grab her face and bless her because she dodges out of the way this time. 
but it's not the crowning moment of defiance and backbone that I wish it were. No, Yuki chooses to go full Bella Swan here. She doesn't want Edward, excuse me, Kaname, to dodge her questions by claiming that he loves her because it's an obvious lie. How could he love someone like her? Seriously, that was literally Bella Swan's biggest character flaw in the Twilight series, one of the primary obstacles even to her love story. She didn't think she was worthy of someone as perfect and beautiful and manipulative and mean and controlling as Edward. And so too does Yuki think she's not worthy of Kaname, who is just a chess master version of that same abuse is love stock boyfriend character. What the fuck was in the water in the mid-2000s? And why on earth did Vampire Knight fans at the time hate Twilight so much? I guess they couldn't stand looking in the fucking mirror. Or maybe they were just genuinely salty about how popular Twilight got instead of their preferred version of the same damn story. But, finally, Yuki manages to get out the question. Does Kaname have something to do with Yuki's past and her missing memories? And his creepy ass smiles. Honestly, this entire scene, almost all of Kaname's scenes, are just so disturbing that I cannot possibly fathom how anyone could possibly read this character as anything short of a villain. Because Yuki is reduced to begging now. She begs him, beating dramatically against his chest for answers, and he calls her so silly for it. Quote, You should stay here in this miniature garden and be happy, even if for a little while longer. And he implies that the truth, whatever it is, is so closely tied to such immense and horrible bloodshed that it will forever ruin her life. Again, I keep coming back to that gift he gave her, that rose preserved in resin. To me, this is the biggest moment of proof that Kaname doesn't actually care about her. His concern here is so disingenuous. She is devastated in this moment, begging and pleading and crying, and she hasn't been sleeping, and she's been having nightmares and hallucinations, and just generally falling apart. But as he openly admits, the thing that he's worried about is that the truth will change her feelings for him. There is a chance that the truth, whatever it is, might make her hate him. And so he would rather hide the truth from her and watch her suffer than just tell her about her own past. When he says that he's trying to make sure she, quote, stays happy for a little while longer, he is absolutely, 100%, beyond a shadow of a doubt, lying. Tell me, tell me honestly, does she look fucking happy in this scene? When was the last time we saw her happy? I genuinely cannot remember if we've seen her having a single moment of joy since sometime back in mid or early season one. Kaname, fundamentally, does not actually care about her happiness. What he cares about is his power over her, and he's afraid that if she knows the truth, he will no longer be able to control her as completely as he does right now. I hate him. I hate this man. I hate this character. And I need some kind of a big sister, cool aunt, awesome mom, or fucking kick-ass grandma to swoop in and save this little girl from this awful, evil man. But now, he offers her a deal of sorts. He will tell her the truth if she agrees to be his, quote, lover. And that is the English translation of whatever the Japanese word was here. It is not translated as girlfriend, it is translated as lover. I'm not even going to get into the implications of that, because then I will literally rant until I die, or possibly spontaneously combust, and so I will instead assume that this is just a little foible of the translation. 
Instead, let's focus on the more concretely horrifying thing here, that this is fucking blackmail. This is a grown, pretty much immortal man blackmailing a 15-year-old little human girl into being his lover in exchange for crumbs of information about her own life history. And as we will see later, he sure as shit isn't in any hurry to uphold his end of the deal even when she agrees to it. And, while this whole nightmare is unfolding, Zero is elsewhere contemplating his own feelings for Yuki, which prompts him to go and look for her. And he finds her at the tail end of what we just saw, because how else could the show achieve peak drama? Yuki tries to say no to Konami's demands, but he expertly gaslights the absolute shit out of her. She knows precisely what he's doing, and he just acts like she's completely crazy and unreasonable until finally she submits to that altered reality, and stops arguing just in time for Zero to walk up and find her in Konami's arms. And Konami, smug piece of utter shit that he is, announces that Yuki is now his lover. How about you just fucking kill me at this point? Just put me out of my misery. I swear to God, if this show does not end with Kaname dead, I'm going to lose my mind and I may never recover. If Yuki actually ends up with this evil goddamn bastard, I don't think I'm gonna survive. Y'all might even catch me crying on screen in the reaction video if this bastard winds up getting to have his way with this tiny little girl. <sighs> so. Let's move into episode 6, I suppose, before I just start screaming incoherently. We find Kaname now in the headmaster's office after dark, and in comes Ichiro. He doesn't understand why he's been asked to attend this little meeting, and he and I are on the same page there, and he remarks that he's not going to be made a part of Kaname's game. But Kaname, of course, quips that Ichiro has already been on the game board for a long time, and then Ichiro just leaves. But out in the hall, we catch a glimpse of the part that he's playing in the aforementioned game. He's got this little vial in his hands, and I've got a pretty concrete theory on what it is, but we will get to that in a little bit. Back in the headmaster's office, Kaname and Cross discuss the dream that Cross has of Cross Academy being a place of peace between humans and vampires, and we get a hint that the relationship between Kaname and Cross actually goes back even further than I realized. Cross flashes momentarily back to the woman that Yuki has been seeing. It's Kaname's mother, and she's holding a baby in her arms. A baby that is, of course, almost certainly Yuki herself. And as he thinks of this woman, Cross remarks that, quote, I want to fulfill her dream no matter what I must do, which casts a whole new light on what we know about him and his motivations. Until now, it's been understood that Cross Academy is Cross's own pet project, that he wants the school to be a place where vampires and humans can coexist in harmony and relative safety. But this line implies that the whole thing isn't, or wasn't originally, his idea. Rather, it implies that Kaname's mother, or perhaps both of his parents, had a dream of peace that Cross is trying to bring to life at the Academy. And why does Cross care so much about Kaname's dead mother's dream? That I don't know. What I do know is that this really clarifies for me what the fuck Kaname is doing here in the first place. It offers far greater insight into why Kaname is so supportive of Cross's endeavor here. If this entire school is something that Cross promised to Konami's murdered mother, it suddenly makes a lot more sense why Konami is supporting it. And it clarifies for me that he really is supporting it rather than just using it. And, perhaps even more interestingly, it casts a certain shadow over Konami's motivations itself. If his mother's dream was the coexistence of vampires and humans, how do Konami's own goals tie into that? Is this also something that he genuinely wants? Or is he just trying to help Cross with this out of love for his lost mother? I'm sure we're going to find out before the end of the series, and I'm looking forward to the answers. 
Now, Cross here says that he knows that Kaname has asked Yuki to be his lover, and I just keep coming back to the very unfortunate fact that Cross is not a good father. Lest I descend into more ranting once again, I'm just going to leave it with that thought. Cross is a bad father, he should have considerably more to say about this relationship, and I think I genuinely hate him for not protecting his little girl more than this. Yuki deserves better. Cut to the girl in question. She's thinking about what Konami said to her last night, and as usual, she can't sleep for worrying. She tosses and turns in bed and then flashes back to a hint of a memory. It's someone brushing brown hair, and as far as I can tell, young Konami is making her a promise. Now, I've said before that I think I am spoiled on one major twist of the series. Perhaps even THE major twist of the series. As far as I understand it, Yuki is Kaname's little sister, and their mother and father were also brother and sister. So an unspoiled fan might not know what the fuck to make of this little flashback, but I think I do. As far as I can tell, this is like preteen Kaname telling baby Yuki that they're going to grow up and get married just like their parents did, and I just cannot even form a coherent thought in response to this. Who the fuck asked for this? In a series for adults, I wouldn't give two-fifths of a fuck about an incest romance. Honestly, I don't really care about that particular taboo, either in fiction or even in real life. What consenting adults do together isn't my goddamn business. That's how I see it. But this... this is not that. First of all, even now, Yuki is not a consenting adult by virtue of not yet being a goddamn adult in the first place. And if this is a pre-cross flashback, then it's a flashback to when she was no older than five years old, and already her much older brother was grooming her to marry him, and I just want to throw myself off a cliff. Well, no. What I really want is for Yuki to turn into some kind of extremely powerful badass vampire girl herself, go through a lovely character arc that makes her realize Kaname is pure trash, and then throw him off a fucking cliff herself. But somehow I don't think I'm going to get that within these last seven episodes. For her part, Yuki doesn't take this flashback particularly well either. She wakes up screaming with a horrible headache, presumably from her memories coming back. She plays it off to Yori, talking about how she just has a lot on her mind and she's really stressed. But that's obviously not what's really happening, and while Yori is trying to get to the bottom of it, it's not working. Yuki will simply not open up to her. And when they see Zero, it's kind of an awkward moment, made worse by the little gaggle that greets them on their way out of the sun dorm. There are four vampires standing outside telling Yuki that on Kaname's orders, they are her new bodyguards. And that is the part of it that is shocking to Yuki, but the part of it that's shocking to me is just who is in our little posse here. It's Kane, which makes sense mostly. It's Ido, which eh, makes a certain amount of sense too. It's Rima, which is fine. And then there's just some random bitch we've never even seen before. Like, who are you? Seriously, this girl doesn't even have a name and doesn't even get a line. What is the point of her? It's so inexplicable, it's hilarious. And Yuki, of course, is surprised, but not remotely as upset as she should be. She's made uncomfortable, of course, by the vampires following her, and Yori gets this hilarious line about this being some weird new form of bullying. It's kind of my favorite. But because Yuki is a 15-year-old, being followed isn't the thing that upsets her. It's the judgment of her peers that drives her to try to dismiss Kaname's gaggle of lackeys. But they have no problem making it very clear that they don't remotely care about what Yuki wants. 
they don't give so much as a single fuck about Yuki herself. They're just following Kaname's orders, and I'm very much willing to bet that they hardly even see Yuki as a person in the first place. Which honestly means that this is a very dangerous, damaging situation. She doesn't even say anything bad about Kaname, and yet her stalkers are already furious and indignant and perfectly willing to put her back in her place. They couldn't make their judgment more clear if they tried. They think Yuki is ungrateful and unreasonable and that she should be bending over backwards with gratitude at Kaname paying any attention to her at all, let alone trying to protect her like this. And, spoiler, this is another abuse tactic. What he's doing here is isolating her. Putting these people around her has the convenient dual effect of distancing her from her jealous classmates while replacing them with his own sycophants. Sycophants who will absolutely make sure that she doesn't have any ability to escape him or avoid him if she wants to. And sycophants who will act as blatant spies or even threats to keep her in line. And, most importantly, at the end of the day, these are four vampires that either don't care about her or, in Ido's case, pretty much hate her. And we keep hearing about how she, just like Bella Swan, smells great to vampires, and so any one of these four could accidentally or purposefully eat her the next time her dumb ass hurts herself. Now, with Kaname being so awful, you could almost be forgiven for thinking that Zero is a reasonable alternative. But no, don't bother with that idea, because throughout all of this, Zero does not defend Yuki at all. She's clearly upset and clearly not consenting to this, and he's got nothing to say. It doesn't exactly endear him to me, and I don't really give a fuck if it's just because he's bitter that she's Kaname's lover now. Any sane person who had witnessed that scene between Kaname and Yuki last night would be 100% on Yuki's side, not holding what's happening against her. The next thing we see, though, is Yuki in class, where she promptly collapses. She's having another flashback to a bloody hand coming out of the shadows to grab her. And so, she's taken to the infirmary, where she has another conversation with Zero about potentially confronting Kaname. And she claims, of course, that she's ready to confront him when she gets the chance, which is very much not true. But, outside the infirmary, we find that Yuki can't even be allowed to heal in peace. Ido lurks in the hall ostensibly to protect her, not that he does a particularly phenomenal job, because it's not long before Ichiru shows up, and while Ido does protest when he goes into the infirmary, he doesn't actually stop him. He should've, though, because Ichiru is definitely up to something nefarious. He has that little vial in his hand once again, and the only reason he doesn't get to use it is because he gets lost in his own memories. Memories, in fact, about how Zero very specifically doesn't ever want Yuki to become a vampire. And that, I think, tells us everything that we need to know about what's happening in this scene. Here's what I'm thinking. The vial in his hands is a vial of blood. Obviously. Konami confirms that for us in the next scene. And I'm thinking that it's Shiki's father's blood. It wouldn't be Shizuka's, as if it was, Ichiru would never have parted with it so easily. I think it was Shiki's father's blood, and that he intended to have Yuki drink it. Somehow, I assume, that would have restored her to vampirism. I don't know the logic here precisely, but I am convinced. Ichiru was sent to this school with that vial for the purpose of turning Yuki back into a vampire, and oh boy, is that ominous. Why does Shiki's father care if Yuki is a vampire or not? Given the vampire incest that's happening in so much of this story, and that I'm all but sure Shiki's father is either Yuki's eldest brother or her uncle, 
Someone please send help. Anyway, before Ichiru can actually make Yuki drink this fluid, Aido interrupts him. And when he demands that Ichiru hand over the vial, Ichiru complies with surprisingly little protest. Perhaps this is because he knew he couldn't take Aido in a fight, or perhaps it's because he knew he could easily get more of Shiki's father's blood. I, though, would prefer to think that this is the moment when Ichiru finally sets aside his hatred for his brother and decides to focus on his future instead of dwelling on a desperate quest to get revenge for his past. In any case, though, I don't think there's actually any chance of Ichiru pulling off something like this again. No, there's no way that Yuki is actually going to be restored to vampirism by drinking Shiki's father's blood. I all but guarantee that when Yuki is inevitably restored to vampirism, it's going to be through a vampire's kiss scene that will wish it had even a tenth of the tension that Kaname and Zero's scenes have had. But whether it's going to be Kaname biting Yuki, or Yuki drinking from Kaname, is anyone's guess. Given this scene, I'm betting it's going to be Yuki drinking Kaname's blood? But I suppose we'll see. It could be both. Next, though, we see Aido handing over the vial to Kaname. Of course, he asks for more information, and of course, he doesn't get it. Instead, Kaname asks him not to mention this to anyone. Like I said, I believe that this blood is, in fact, Shiki's father's, which means I think that it's time for the rest of my theory. Like I said, I think that Shiki's father is Kaname's uncle, and that he is the one who killed Kaname's parents. I think he is the one whose hand we're seeing when Yuki imagines someone reaching out toward her, saying something like, be mine or you're mine or something along those lines. Because I suspect that Shiki's father, before he needed to regenerate in that contraption, was very specifically going after pure-blood vampire women and girls. We keep seeing this vision of Yuki's mother covered in blood and either lunging or falling forward, and I can only imagine that's because Shiki's father went after her and did something awful. I think that in the previous season, when they alluded to a bigger bad behind Shizuka, who was her pure-blood fiancé, I think that it's the same person we're dealing with now. I think Shizuka's fiancé was Shiki's father, and I think that everything that happened with Zero's family was specifically to punish her for falling in love with some less-than-pure-blood vampire. And I think that either before or after Shizuka, he tried to get his hands on the other two female purebloods that we know about, Kaname's mother and Yuki herself. Whatever happened, though, it somehow ended up with Yuki having her memories erased and being turned into a human, perhaps to hide her and or protect her. The fact that this character says he's been regenerating in this bath of his implies that whatever happened, he was done incredible damage in the past, perhaps by one or both of Kaname's parents or by Kaname himself. Maybe that's actually how they died. Maybe they defended their daughter to the death. But why, I have to ask, does Kaname refer to Shiki's father's blood here as vile and tainted? What is wrong with Shiki's father? Or is this actually someone else's blood? In any case, Kaname destroys the vial, and then we're on to Cross being a goober again. Despite the fact that it's a recipe for disaster, he invites Ichiru to dinner with him, Zero, and Yuki. He's going on about how redemption is possible for Ichiru, and Ichiru is not largely interested, or so he claims. He does end up showing up to the dinner, but it goes predictably badly. Ichiru, interestingly though, is the one that seems to be trying the most to bridge this gap between himself and Zero, though he's not willing to actually vocalize what he's emotionally experiencing. 
And of course, he's a very sensitive person. Being overly sensitive is how he got into this entire mess. So when Zero metaphorically pokes the wound that is their familial relationship, Ichiru ends up storming out. Though Zero does notice the little olive branch that his brother was trying to offer him. And so I hope that there's some degree of reconciliation in their future. But when Yuki is ready to leave the infirmary, Zero and Aido are already both there, waiting to fetch her. Aido claims that Konami wants to see her, and on the way there, he reveals a little bit about Konami's backstory. He tells Yuki that Konami's parents were killed, and that when he tried to look into the information about this incident, it looked as if everything had been very deliberately covered up. All the relevant information was either missing or destroyed, just as Yuki's memories are missing. And so then, Aido drops them off at what appears to be the tree line. It turns out that Konami has arranged some kind of a strange little picnic or whatever for Yuki, and Zero, of course, has tagged along, and it's all so utterly upsetting. At no point did Yuki actually consent to any of this, and at every point in this scene, Konami continues to escalate. He tries to push her into doing more and more of what he tells her, trying to incite her to move closer and closer to him. And when she doesn't obey him, he just grabs her and wrenches her toward him. But it's certainly not reciprocal. She's forced to comply with his demands, but when she points out that this whole thing is a deal and that she's still waiting for him to uphold his end, he brushes her off again. Quote, I don't want to tell you when you look so fierce. And just, Yuki, honey, I really need you to punch this bastard directly in the dick. Every single part of this is just so upsetting. Again, he's just grabbing her and he's like pulling her around and acting so fucking disingenuous and delusional. He is essentially trying to force her to act out the relationship fantasy that lives inside his head. And my skin is actively crawling away from me as I speak. Listen to Yuki's lines in this scene. Even she knows that something is wrong here. She is only 15 and she's being groomed by this man and yet she still understands that something is fucking wrong. I am just out of my mind enraged. And she even seems aware of the fact that he is enjoying this experience. He is using her to enjoy himself and to amuse himself, and he does not seem to care that she is not, in turn, enjoying herself. She is uncomfortable and miserable and not getting anything that she wants, and he either somehow doesn't notice or outright doesn't care. And throughout all of it, Zero is just lurking in the background, looking on without anything to say for himself. Eat them all into the sun. And when it finally ends, everyone heads off to dinner, which I have already gone over and we don't need to discuss again. Instead, let's get into this final scene of the episode. Ichijo is driving Shiki home, and Shiki has been through a lot. As a matter of fact, Shiki is not Shiki anymore. Just as the little boy in the opening was possessed by Shiki's father, Shiki too is now possessed by his dad. When the real head of the family appears, I wonder how you will react, he says. And though he is physically talking to Ichijo, he isn't actually talking to him. He's talking to Kaname, or as he calls him, that fake successor. And then, Shiki heads into the moon dorm, and we catch a glimpse of his eyes. Just as the little boy from the previous episode had one Karan brown eye and one blue eye, so too does Shiki now. One of his blue eyes has been replaced by a Curran family brown eye, and Rima, who has very clearly been in love with Shiki this entire time, is horrified. Who are you? She demands. But that is where the show ends.
It's a pretty sad moment, and I do think that it promises that both confrontation and answers are very rapidly approaching. And as I am finding season two considerably less enjoyable than I found season one, I'm looking forward to having these answers. And I'm looking forward to the end of the show. So, as per usual, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do consider going to leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice if you have not already done so in the past. Otherwise, you could also go over to my Patreon, where for $1 per month you can vote to help me decide what it is that I will be watching in my future reaction videos and or covering on the pod. Or, for $5 a month, you can both vote and get access to all of my reaction videos covering this series and other shows like Umbrella Academy, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Squid Game, and many, many more. And with all of that said, I will be back next week with my coverage of the next three episodes of Vampire Night Guilty, and I hope you will join me for that episode, even if I do continue to lose my mind in incandescent rage. And, as always, thank you so much for listening.